And we are working through um, the book of Ephesians in our series, uh, A Body in Motion. And we're starting the second chapter of Ephesians today. And I just want to remind us kind of of what we've covered um, in these first four weeks, because the first three chapters of this book um, are a prayer. It's Paul's prayer. It's his opening address um, to the people he's writing this letter to, to the Ephesians. Um, and it's Paul's prayer, um, not just in abstract terms. It's not just, oftentimes we forget that prayer can be for people. Um, we often think that prayer is an individual to God, but, but Paul here is praying to God for the church. He's praying to God for those who are reading the letter. Um, and in the past year at GCF, we've preached through three Pauline epistles. Um, last year we went through Philippians and Colossians, and this year um, we're doing Ephesians. And each of these books um, have individual emphasis, emphasize, however, whatever you want to say, individual points of emphasis, and they're unique and they're different. But as we've gone through and we've studied all three of them, I've been convicted of the same thing, um, and that's that my prayer life sucks. Because you look at Philippians and you look at Colossians and you look at Ephesians and you see Paul's passionate prayer for the church, his passionate prayer for those he's ministering to. And here in Ephesians, um, you see Paul painting a beautiful picture of God and his prayer is this interwoven supplication and intercession and worship to God. He's, he's talking to God and he's talking to us and all the while he's exalting God and stirring worship inside of those who are reading this letter. And I look at my own prayer life and I'm like, that's pretty bleak. And so Paul is really, not only is he teaching us, he's stretching how we should approach prayer. He's stretching, what is it that we pray for? Pray for? Well, he's drawing to attention our emphasis um, in prayer because Paul's first chapter that we just went through in this book was really a lecture um, in theology. Really in the first chapter, he, he introduces himself, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and just rolls on. What does it mean um, that God is blessed? What does it mean that he's the Father of Jesus Christ? And he stimulates our worship by painting a picture of a God who before the foundations of the world planned the most glorious redemption so that we might come to know Christ who is the fullness of him who fills all things. That's kind of the emphasis that Paul has put um, in the first uh, 23 verses boiled down. A God who before the foundations of the world, a glorious God before the foundations of the world, who planned the most beautiful redemption so that we might come to know Christ who is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Stephen spoke um, last week, and he did a great job showing us um, through Paul's prayer that Paul's not only writing to give us um, knowledge. He, he's not just writing so that we, um, we have an awareness, so that we can recite the gospel. He wants us to know the gospel. He wants us to know the hope that we have in Christ. In fact, last week we saw um, the verse where it says... Uh, uh, um, to know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. And so Paul is writing uh, this to us so that we may know, like deep in our hearts, deep, deep in the reality of who we are, know the hope that we have. Um, and I'm reading a book uh, right now for one of my, my classes, and it's on, it's kind of highlights of the 21st or the 20th century um, theology. And what it does is it looks at a bunch of theologians in the 21st century and you just kind of study them. Um, and by influential, because um, it's studying the influential ones, it doesn't necessarily mean biblical. 
Because oftentimes we're reading about these guys who are typically German, so you could, you could foster some hate in your heart for liberal Germans somewhere. Um, they get something wrong about Scripture. They get something about the Bible wrong. They get something uh, about God wrong. And that's, that's a sad thing, actually, when you look back and see that the most influential people from a historical perspective who have had shaping influences on Christianity have been people who have gotten certain aspects of it wrong. That, that means we need to step up um, our game um, and emphasize what is right. Um, but one thing I noticed is I was reading about one theologian, and the narrator or author said this, um, of this guy's theology. He said, having established the doctrine of humanity, Cobb, um, who's the, the theologian, Cobb then established a corollary or uh, a next to doctrine of God. And so the author says here that, that this theologian went and established a theology of man, and then from his theology of man, he established a theology of God. And he did this because this guy wanted to know things. He wanted to know the basic question of human existence, right? Anthropology. Why do we exist? And so he started with man, and he says, well, why do we exist? Why are we here? What, what is it that we do? And then he moved to philosophy, right? That's where God comes in. And he's like, now why are we here? And how should we act while we're here? But what he missed in that statement is huge. Because to understand the fullness of who we are and where we fit, you don't look at humanity, you look at God. You see, our view of God shapes our understanding of humanity. We don't, find our, we don't find God in the shadow of man. We find man in the image of God. And so if you want to get anthropology, you start with theology. You start with who God is because being made in the image of God, who is a creator and a blesser and one who overflows out of the, the abundance of himself, you start with God and it changes how you view yourself. And so Paul's going to answer those questions today. He's going to answer how do we view ourselves and what are we to do while we're here? What is the reason um, that we are here and, and how did we end up getting here? But he's going to answer that only after he has given us a clear glimpse at who God is and then he's going to reference back to that God as we go through it. So I just want to pray for us um, and then we're going to jump fully in to Ephesians chapter 2. Lord, uh, we thank you that Paul's prayer was for us. We thank you that not only was it for the Ephesians or the Laodiceans who would read this, this letter, for, for the rest of the towns that this was circulated to. God, this letter um, and the prayer that Paul prayed that we may come to a knowledge of the hope that we have and the abundant riches in Christ that Paul was praying that for us. And I thank you that the Holy Spirit has been working throughout history um, knowing that there is going to be a, a group of students gathered in Chemistry 123 at the University of Montana campus um, on October 2nd. I thank you that Paul's prayer was working in this room. And so I pray that as we look at your text that, that we understand um, who we are in light of who you are. And I pray that that just trickles down to everything that we are. It changes how we think and how we talk and how, how we act and, and what we do with our lives and what we emphasize with our lives. And so, God, we thank you for this, and we thank you for the word you've given us. Um, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, um, I'm going to break up. We're going through, as, as Jordan or Logan read for us, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, break it up into two parts. The first part is man according to nature. Um, man according to nature. And so, this is where we see verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, Paul, Paul starts out um, on, on a deeply personal note. You see, and it's funny because the rest of this, Paul's talking about the we and the us and all of this. And then right here, he's like, the church, the church, the church, the church, you were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. And see, Paul here, he's not saying you. He's not referring to a people group. He's not referring to the church at large. He's not referring to the Jews. He's not referring to the Gentiles. If you can answer to you, hey, you, Paul's talking to you. He's saying you, you were dead and your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. You were dead in them. And, and he says trespasses and sins, and, and trespasses is like a misstep. And so where sin, sins are, are easy, we see what sins are. Uh, we can understand what a sin is. And you may look at your life and be like, well, I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, I haven't stolen from anybody. I, I, haven't, um, I haven't robbed anybody. You may, I haven't committed any sins, but have you trespassed? Like maybe have you told like a little lie? Like, did you really, were you really too busy last night that you didn't get your homework in? Or were you really excited that season eight of How I Met Your Mother came out on Netflix? Because um, do, those don't quite qualify. Um, and, and so, but those missteps, Paul is saying, those transgressions are equally as, as, as worthy of wrath as sin. He says, if you have misstepped, if you have sinned, you are dead. You are dead in your trespasses and you are dead in your sins because you're born dead. That's what Paul's saying. How dead? Dead, dead. That's one of our favorite lines at Sovereign Hope. How dead? Dead, dead. Super dead. Really dead. Dead in your sin, dead in your trespasses. Roman, in Romans, Paul says that through one man's sin, all have died. Through Adam's sin, all have died. By nature, we are all dead. You see, we were created to be ruled. In, in 1 Samuel 8, um, in, in the progression of the Bible, um, we, we've seen the fall of man, we've seen the flood, um, we've seen the covenant to Abraham, and now we see um, the people of Israel looking for a ruler. And in 1 Samuel 8, um, the people of Israel reject the ruler that God put in place. They're like, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And I love what God says to Samuel, because Samuel's like, well, they're rejecting me, God. They're rejecting me as, as judge over them. And God says to Samuel, he says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. You see, all along, whether the Israelites knew it or not, God was their king. God was their ruler. In the garden, before sin even entered, God ruled over Adam and Eve. God made them. God gave them rules. God had authors rights over them. But the people of Israel didn't realize that. They didn't realize that God was their ruler because they were dead in their trespasses. Their hearts had sinned against God. Their hearts had left God. Their hearts did not believe that God was their ruler. And see, that's it. That's the chief of all sin. If, if someone said to you, what, what is the chief of all sin? What is, what is the root of all sin? Is it evil? Is it hatred? Is it lust? Because it's not murder and it's not adultery. The chief sin, the root of all sin, is unbelief in our true ruler. That's where all sin stems from. Unbelief in our true ruler. And in unbelief, we're born, and in unbelief, we're dead. Now, now I, say, I don't say um, 
what I say is that the chief sin is unbelief in our true ruler because we're always ruled. It's not like Christians are submitting to, to a higher power. Christians are submitting to a sovereign God and everybody else are these free entities doing whatever they want. These free spirits um, able to, to pick and choose what they want to do and have complete and utter control over their desires and their choices and what they want to do. Um, and we see this in verses 2 through 3 um, where Paul says this. Um, he says, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, in our sin, we're still followers. And Paul, Paul says, hey, you, when you are dead, you're followers of the power of the air. You're, you're followers of, uh, um, of the, the, the prince that is out there and the sons of disobedience. You're a follower and you're following the power of the air. How powerful does that sound, the power of the air? Like that's the power that you're following. The power of the son of disobedience. You see, we are slaves to sin when we're dead. You can look at people, uh, and that's typically people's rebellion against Christianity, right? I don't want someone to tell me what to do. Man, you're a slave, you just don't see it. You're a slave to passion, and you're a slave um, to to our desires. And I love it where it says there, it says... uh, it said, um, which we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, when we are in sin, we follow what our passion is. And a sinful passion is death. Your passion when you are in sin is to choose death. And we're just so brainwashed by the people we're following that we don't realize it. We think we're being unique. We think we're pursuing joy. We think we're pursuing satisfaction. But all the while, what you're really pursuing is death. What you're really pursuing is a desire that never gives birth to life. And I see this in my son. My son proves this passage. My beautiful, little, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, almost one-year-old son is an icon of sin. He is a petri dish of iniquity. Um, and. <laughs> And anybody who ever said children are innocent has never had children. And I've always heard that. Like, oh, right. Like, we get it. Kids can be bad. But they're evil. They're downright evil. Like, he's, at this point, he was like 11 months old. And he knows not to touch the dishwasher for his own good. Because they're like knives and stuff in the dishwasher. And so, when he goes to reach for it, I say, no. And then you say no three times, and we slap his hand. Um, and, And he does this. And, and then we're like, well, does he really know what's happening? Like, are we just slapping the hand of our child for no reason? Can he understand what's going on? But then my wife noticed that when I would reach down to the dishwasher, Owen would pull his hand away. And then when I look back to the d- sink to grab dishes, Owen would reach for the dishwasher. And I look back and he pulls his hand back. And then he's like testing the line. He's a pagan sinner um, <laughs> who wants to just deceive dad. And while he's looking away, grab the dishwasher. Um, and, and he has decided that everything in the world is his. Everything, like if, if, you, if you have it at home in your dorm room, it's Owen's. And one day he will come and claim it. Um, and, and especially if it's food. He, he loves food, um, but for some reason, see his dad loves food and his dad is big and he loves food and he's still like a runt on the growth scale. Um, but uh, if he knows of its existence, he wants to eat it. And we were on a road trip um, to Walla Walla a couple weeks ago, and I was sitting in the back because my friend was driving, and Sarah, 
um, was by the window and I was in the middle and Owen was in his car seat next to me. And I was eating at Costco. Have you guys ever had the Costco pretzel crisps? They're like pretzels run over by a, by a freight train and they're delicious. Um, and so I, w- I was eating them because I'm a grown up. Um, and then Owen starts like wanting them. And, and he puts out his hand. And he's like, Mo, Mo. Um, cause he always, I'm like, you haven't had any yet. And he still wants more. It's the cry of a sinner. Um, and, uh, and so I give him a pretzel crisp. Um, and, and Sarah didn't really know I gave it to him cause she probably wouldn't have allowed it. Um, and he starts eating on it and then he starts to choke and, and not, not, not like, like, <coughs> like, <coughs> and so we're on the highway and I like, like dad mode, like pull him out of his car seat and like baby Heimlich him um, and then put him back in there. He's got like snot running all down his face. Um, and so, so uh, I put Owen back in and then Owen says, Mo, because he's an idiot. <laughs> and because I'm an idiot, I gave him another one. Um, and so now I'm like, maybe he learned like, soften it with saliva and then chew it and then swallow. Um, and then he chokes on this one. Okay. Um, and then I, but not like the same level of choking. Cause I'm like watching him now. Cause I mean, I want, I don't, I want the kid to live. I'm not just going to take him away. Like we're choking is a process. Um, and so I'm like, I can intercede and he'll learn not to die. Um, and so I, I like do the finger sweep out of the, out of the back of the throat. And, uh, he wasn't happy about that. But then I start eating the pretzel crisps again, and he's like, Mo. <laughs> like, and, and so last night, I was sitting on a couch eating pretzel crisps, because apparently it's a pattern in my life. Um, and he came up to me, and he wanted one. And he's like, Mo, Mo. And I was on the phone with somebody, and so I'm not really thinking. Um, and, and, and I split it in half, because I'm like, well, you can't smoke on, choke on small things, right? Um, and so I give him this half, and then sure enough, while I'm on the phone, Owen's like, <coughs> and he's choking again. So now I've learned my lesson. Babies should not eat pretzel crisps, okay? That, which also includes tortilla chips, which I was told by my wife. Just don't let them eat them. Um, I learned Owen, after I took it out of his mouth, just threw a temper tantrum to get into the pretzel crisp bag. Like he wanted it. There was nothing that could happen in this world that would make him not want a pretzel crisp still because he has tasted the fleeting satisfaction of baked and lightly salted pressed pretzel crisps and he will not rest until he has them. But he's also numb to the reality that every time he has them, he's choking on them. It doesn't register to him because all he, he can think about is that it's something to eat and that it's something that tasted good, but he doesn't realize the pattern that what it's doing is it's really causing him to choke. And really, we're all Owens. We're all, in our sin, we're all ruled by a desire for something. Whether it's popularity, whether it's sex, whether it's uh, fame, whether it's, it's acknowledgement by man, you're ruled by something because you're not ruled by God. And when you're ruled in that, you will desire it and you will sacrifice for it and you will manipulate for it and you'll use people for it and you will never be satisfied by it. You see, in our sin, we're trapped by desire. And that desire leads us to death. You see, true freedom doesn't come from gluttony. 
True freedom isn't going to an all-you-can-eat buffet and eating until you're sick. That's, that's slavery. True freedom is the ability to, to say no. And in our sin, you could say no to nothing because we're constantly looking for something of worth to rule our lives. And the result of that, of that false desire and lack of satisfaction, is that in our unbelief, we have become children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Not children that God is okay with, not children that are in timeout, children of wrath. Rightfully deserving the wrath of God, because they have rejected him as their ruler. You are dead. You are a slave to sin. You are a child of wrath. By nature, that's what it means to be human. For the wages of sin is death, but. But what? Isn't that the answer that we have to come up with? But what? I mean, we can look around and see like, hey, humans don't have it all together. We can see like even if we don't believe in sin, like we could call something sin. Like even in prison, there's like scales of things where like if you are a a sexual offender or or, like a, a child pornographer, like you're at the low end of the totem pole. Even the most depraved people can see the reality of sin. And so what do we say to that? And we say, but, but we humans, but man, it says, look at the progress we've made over the last two centuries. Look at this progress that we've done. It says we're technologically advanced. We're globally aware. We're medically prepared. We have the internet. We, we've, got, we've got the Peace Corps. We've got all these things that are coming together, trying to bring the world into the future. We are progressing We are so much more aware of social issues. We are so much more aware of equality. Human rights are thriving. People are being freed. We're shaking off the dust that came through that moralistic age of religion that bred hatred. We're a postmodern culture. We get it, and the past never got it. But does progress really save us? Is man really advancing? Like, is that really what we're going to cling to? And we we point to ourselves and be like, that man, no, but this man, yes. Because look at the 20th century. I mean, look at the atrocities of the 20th century, and they don't really scream progress. Two world wars, two nuclear bombs, the attempted extermination of a whole people group, 13 million people killed in Stalin's purges, mass graves in Eastern Europe, a nuclear-armed world, Drug cartels in South Africa, apartheid, or drug cartels in South America, apartheids in South Africa. It's estimated that a hun- over 160 million people were killed in the 20th century via war, uprising, or conflict. We're in the 21st, right? Right. We have Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, and we're we can like hashtag like world peace and all that good stuff, and hashtag blessed, and. Uh, and right, we're t- the 21st century. We're 13 years old. We're young. And so far in those 13 years, we've seen a global rise of terrorism, the Darfur slaughter, earthquakes, tsunamis, Kony and bin Laden, civil wars in Sri Lanka, Egypt, Afghanistan, Nepal, Chad, Ivory Coast. We've discovered no cure for cancer, no solutions for AIDS. We've seen the Boston bombings and biological weapons in Syria. And over 15 million babies have been killed in the U.S. alone via abortion since the year 2000. Progress! 
We're doing it. There's no progress. For the wages of sin is death, but progress gets you nowhere. But man gets you nowhere. But technology gets you nowhere. But medical advancements get you nowhere. But awareness gets you nowhere. For the wages of sin is death, but we need a greater solution to our death. You see, I love the book of Ezekiel because in it, God is prophesying, or Ezekiel is, is prophesying um, to, to Israel and Judah, and he's saying, because of your sins, if you don't change, you're going to die. Your sin is death. A physical, you will, you will be, your life will be taken from you by other nations because of your sin. But then Ezekiel, in, in the middle part of the book, he gives the people a new hope. God gives the people a new hope. And I love Ezekiel 36, where in it, God is promising where one day he will give them a new heart. And one day he will pour out a new spirit on them. And they will finally have life. And they will be able to live the life that God called them to live. That, that day is coming when the spirit will come and, and new breath will fill your lungs. And I love this because in the very next chapter, God goes and does an experiment with Ezekiel. It says, Ezekiel, come out here. He says, go to the valley of dry bones. And so Ezekiel goes out and there's this valley full of dry, dead bones left over from a battle or a genocide or, or something. Just this, this valley, this pit full of bones. And not like freshly killed bones, but, but ages of dead, dry, decomposing bones. And God says to Ezekiel, and, and just imagine that. Like, like I remember when I was at the Holocaust Museum um, in New York or in Washington, D.C., and you walk over this, uh, this like catwalk that's over um, just a, a, like a room-sized bowl of hair. And it's hair that was shaved off of Jews before they went into the showers. And just like you, you're standing over that, and it's just like you just shiver with death. And, and Ezekiel's experiencing that same thing right now. Just bones and, and death. And God says to Ezekiel, he says, prophesy to the bones. And Ezekiel's like, what? God's like, son of man prophesied to the bones. So Ezekiel's like, okay. So he prophesies to the bones. And I love the Bible. It says there's there a clattering. And bones started joining to bone. And then a sinew popped out and connected the bones. And then muscle formed over the sinew. And then skin formed over the muscle. And now these bones, which were once dead and disconnected, now they're bodies. Bodies laying there. And Ezekiel's already stunned. And then I love it, God says, he says, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Son of man, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath and say, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so these aren't just people who are dead. These are people who have been killed. These are people who have been slain. Slain partly because of their sin. Slain because other nations came in and conquered Israel because Israel was not walking with the Lord. And he goes and looks at these slain people, slain by their sins, and he says, prophesy breath over them. Prophesy spirit over them. And Ezekiel says that the bodies stood. He says they gathered and they stood, not as a crowd, not as a couple individuals, but Ezekiel says, as an exceedingly great 
army. From bones to breath, God brings forth his people. From bones to breath is God's plan. You see, God then says to Ezekiel, he says, this, this is what I'm going to do to my people. In that age when that spirit comes, in that age when you receive your new heart, your bones are going to grow sinews and you're going to have breath in your lungs and you're going to stand as an exceedingly great army. You see, we needed that life. Israel needed that life. And bones don't get life, but God gives life. And I love because the very next verse that we're looking at in Ephesians answers the question, for the wages of sin is death, but God. But God. What a beautiful line in Scripture where we just finished, you, like the rest of mankind, are children of wrath, dead in your trespasses, followers of the spirit of disobedience, but God. And you see, this is why chapter one is so beautifully important to us. This is why chapter one is where Paul starts. This is why you start with God and look back to man, because we have seen that God is a blessed God. We have seen that God is a God who gives blessing. God is a God who orchestrates salvation. God is a God who works all things in accordance to the counsel of his will. God is a God who desires us to know the hope to which he has called us before the foundations of the world. That God has something to say about humanity. That God has something to say about nature. And he says it in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, the first part is man according to nature, but the second part, is man according to grace. And that's a much better end of the story. You see, man according to grace is altogether different than man according to nature. Man according to nature is defined by himself. Man according to grace is defined by the nature of God. God, and that God so acted in mercy out of the great love that he had for sinners. God didn't act out of boredom. God didn't act out of necessity. God didn't act out of a desire to, to beat the forces of darkness. God acted out of an overflow of mercy, which found its origin in God's great love for sinners. Whoa, did you see that? God's great love for sinners. You saw it. it says that God sent Christ, by grace you have been saved, raised up with him, even while you were dead in your trespasses. How does that work? Right, because 1 John tells us, 1 John says that, that God is light in him, there's no darkness at all. We're children of wrath. God is right to reject us. God is right to damn us. God is right to kill us. We had one rule and we broke it. It is just for God to cut off his people. So how does God love a sinner? How does that happen? How does that mix? How can we come to God and say, hey God, can, can, I, can I be saved? And God's like, you're a sinner, you can't be saved. There's nothing you can do to be saved. 
You're a sinner. God hates sinners. Sinners stand in the wrath of God. But this is again the beautiful part of starting with a view of God. Because before the foundations of the world, God planned for us to be adopted through Christ Jesus. You see, the beautiful reality of this is that when God looks at a sinner, he sees through the sinner to the cross of Christ. And God delights in the sinless Christ who died in his place. See, only because before the foundations of the world, Christ, only because of Christ, only because of the cross can God love sinners because there is nothing in sin that is appeasing to God. But in Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all, God is satisfied. And because God, before the foundations of the world, predestined us for adoption to be sons and daughters of God, according to his great mercy, God treasures the sinner through Christ. God loves sinners because it is his delight to love them through Christ before the foundations of the world. You see, God chooses to love us because God chose to send Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And I love how Paul puts that in there. Like that's, that's Paul, like that's, that's Paul's inner self, like leaping out of his pen. He's like in the middle of a sentence and he is so overwhelmed with the mercy of God that in the middle of his sentence in a place that really doesn't even make sense, he's like, by grace, you have been saved. Hallelujah. Back to the story. <laughs> by grace, you have been saved. You were dead, but God made us alive together through Christ. I love first Peter what he says about this. Well, I love Peter. His name's not First Peter. Um, Peter says this, starting in verse 23. When Jesus, he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. See, sheep, no one assumes sheep are pointless. Sheep always have a shepherd. You are always ruled by something. But are you, have you been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul? Have you been returned to your right ruler? Because the great shepherd is the bringer of breath. The great shepherd is the restorer of life. You see, Jesus brought our dry bones and made us alive in himself. And what I love here is, is this opens up with, and you were dead. Very personal. You were dead. But I love the change of pronouns that happens here because while you were dead, God raised us together in Christ. You see, that's a beautiful transition because your individual sin raises the church. Because God didn't die for just the Christian. Jesus died for the church. Jesus raises his people because God's power is infinite. God's not anxiously waiting for the individual. God is consciously directing his church. Jesus brings forth his people because Jesus is the all-powerful God, the one who fills all in all. And so God's people rise up out of death through the cross of Christ and they stand there as an anxious army. And I love that phrase. I love that, that phrase that Ezekiel uses, an exceedingly great army. Exceedingly great. 
And there, that, that anxious component comes in verses 6 and 7. Did you see the purpose statement <clears throat> that Paul had? Um, starting in verse 6, and raised us up with him, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, okay, this purpose statement, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, why the cross? Why? So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches found in Christ Jesus. And see, I love in Philippians, which we just looked at, in Philippians 3.8, Paul says um, himself that he counts everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You see, Philippians 3.8 is in the immediate context. In the immediate context, Paul says, I count it all as lost. I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of knowing that true in your heart, in your being, in your worship, having him as your, your Lord and Savior over you, knowing that everything as a loss. And I live in Corinthians, where in case you don't believe Paul, he, he says in 2 Corinthians, he says, for the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness, with hardship, with insult, with persecution, with calamity. Why? Because when I'm weak, he is strong. You see, for Paul, it all comes down to Christ. In Paul, he's seen the surpassing worth. He lives the surpassing worth. He was beaten, shipwrecked, dipped in oil. He was crucified. Um, was Paul crucified or was Peter crucified? Peter, Peter was crucified. Paul wasn't crucified. Um, I won't make up Bible stories like I did the first week. Um, but in all of this, Paul endured all of that not because he loves the church, not because he likes to be a preacher, not because... He loves to gather crowds. Paul did all of that because he was motivated by the love of Jesus Christ in the present moment. But the beautiful thing about Paul's in Ephesians is he's saying that all of that is true. That there is a surpassing worth that allows you to, to contend with anything you will face in this moment and treasure it more than the fleeting satisfactions of the world. But more is yet to come but greater satisfaction and greater joy and immeasurable riches are yet to come. And that is why Christ has died. And that is why he has brought us. Because one day we will be in heaven with him and we will see him like he is and we will see the immeasurable worth and glory and honor and praise and that anxiety and that tension we have changes how we live now. Looking at the beautiful hope that is yet to come changes how the army stands in the present. And I love how earlier in 1 Peter, Peter says that, that you have experienced things which the prophets inquired into. Things which angels long to look. And I love that because you can just imagine Ezekiel seeing his people rebelling in sin and then God bringing him out to these dry bones and, and bringing these bones to life and raising an army. And Ezekiel's like, when is this going to happen? Tomorrow? No, Ezekiel. Like, like, next month? No, Ezekiel. Like, in a few years? He's like, no, Ezekiel. That happened at the cross. Man, how Ezekiel and Isaiah and Hosea and Joel, how they longed to see those prophecies. And we now live in those prophecies. We see the cross of Christ. We live in the age where that spirit has come, that breath has filled our lungs, and the bodies are being raised by the power of Christ. And I love this because in this tension, we find our purpose. You want to know the why of humanity? You want to know how you're supposed to act 
in the immediate, we find our purpose in Ephesians 2. Because, because God saved us out of an overflow of love, He also saved us for a purpose. And we see this purpose in verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see the inversion here. If we look at the first 10 verses, it starts out with you were a slave to the works of, son, of the son of disobedience, but now we're slaves to the work of the son of God. That's a much better master. That's a much better ru- ruler. You see, your work doesn't save you. Paul makes that clear. Grace saves you. No amount of good deeds, no amount of community service, no Bible reading, no, no social justice, no rotary clubs, no Bible belts, no gold stars will ever save you. Grace saves you through Christ, sealed by faith. Grace has saved us. Pure, pure, unworthy, dangerous, scandalous, glorious grace. That has saved us. Saved us. And that grace gives us over to a new work. You were, see this, this is the philosophy of it. You were, your purpose statement, you were created as Christ's workmanship. Created to do good works which he prepared beforehand that we as the church, as the church and as individuals being the church, that we should walk in them. Okay, that's the word of God telling you what you're here for. Okay, so if someone asks you, what do you want to do with your life? We could say lots of things. And you ought to say lots of things because God has given us the desire to choose what we want to do with our life. But at the core of what it is you're to do with your life, if you want that immeasurable riches, if you see the glorious grace that has come through the cross, our greatest humanity comes not through, through business acumen, through, through education, through family, through marital status, through relationships. Our greatest being as human comes in doing the work of Christ as the people of Christ in the places for Christ. That's what we are called to do as Christians. You may well be a student someday. You may well be a spouse, a parent, a business person, a lawyer, an analyst, an athlete, a diplomat, a storecluse, or a busboy. But what you are is Christ's workmanship. Created to do work. The work of reconciliation, the work of gospel proclamation, the work of worship, the work of community, the work of Bible reading, the work of gathering, the work of fellowship, the work of all things which bring glory and honor to Christ forever and ever. Your life as a human is ultimately about your life in Christ. In Christ, you are the most human, and in his plan, you are the most purposed. That's the greatest lesson in anthropology. That's the greatest result of philosophy. In Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. That's what we've been given over to. That's what the anxious army of God does. That's what the church does. And so my question is, are you doing it? See, the beautiful thing is that that we've got works to walk in. But, But I'm doing mine being employed by a church. Some of you are doing it through sports teams. Some of you are doing it um, employed at restaurants. Some of you clean places. Some of you are just full-time students. 
but all of you in that path of life have a burden to do the work that God has set you to do. And that burden doesn't go away, and that burden is never changed. And that's what it means to be a body in motion. You see, an exceedingly great army isn't created to stand. It's created to move. God raised us from the dead to be a people who moves to do his work, who are anxious to do his work. On our own, we're dead, but through Christ, we are an anxious army, stunned by the worth at hand, amazed at the treasure yet to come, zealous for the work to be done. That's our call. Won't you believe that call with me? Won't you cherish that task? Won't you worship that Savior? Won't you change your life? Let's pray. Man, what a good prayer, God. And again, we just say thank you. We say thank you for what Paul wished for the church. We say thank you to what Christ has done for the church. We say thank you to you for what you have planned before the foundations of the world to save the church through Christ. And Lord, I ask that, that, that we as individuals being members of the church of Christ, that we are able to do that work well. God, I pray for guidance for those who are in here. Guidance where our purpose has been lost, where we no longer see ourselves as Christ's workmanship, but we see ourselves as a student or as a friend or as a daughter or as a boyfriend or as anything else because the chief of our being is nothing on this earth. The chief of our being is we are Christ's workmanship, created for a different calling. Lord, you've all called us to the same task, and that's to walk in the works you've prepared for us. Give us clarity in your works. Give us power through your cross. Give us worship in Christ. And give us joy in the infinite worth yet to come. We pray this in your name. Amen.